Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Again, Matthew chapter 26, we are slowly and very methodically almost to the end of Matthew. Just a couple more chapters to go. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, however, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 47 through 56. Again, Matthew 26, verse 47 to 56. And if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Scripture says that while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left Him and fled. You can be seated. This morning we have a very interesting text because it shows to us again the behavior and the nature of human emotion, of human behavior and how people act and the responses that we see all throughout the Scripture toward Jesus and the message of the Gospel. As we arrive here in this moment, do you remember last week we looked at that time of prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus had left the upper room with His disciples where they had shared that last meal together. And they go out to the garden to pray. And Jesus goes and, and is in this, this desperate mode of interceding before God, broken hearted, weeping before God, troubled in His spirit and soul about what was to come, what He was going to have to face on the cross when He went there and the wrath of God was poured out upon Him for the sins of His people. The separation that was going to occur between Him and God. And it was in that moment as Jesus prayed that He acknowledged the submission of His will to the Father's will. And His commitment to go forth in exactly what God had asked Him to do. To go to the cross to suffer on our behalf. But you remember it was also that moment where the disciples had let Jesus down because He had asked them to watch with Him and to pray with Him. And they did not. And there at the very end of that section, Jesus said in verse 46, Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays Me is at hand. And immediately in that moment, the disciples looked up from where they had been cast down, looked down from where they had been sleeping, still wiping the sleep out of their eyes. And they look there and coming through the garden is Judas along with the multitude who came with him. The first thing that I want you to notice in this text are enemies who conspire. Enemies who conspire. Verse 47 tells us that while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the question that somebody might ask immediately, and understanding exactly what's happening here, is how did they know where Jesus was? Because we know that Judas had left the upper room. When Jesus had said, one of you will betray me, he sent Judas out, go do what you're going to do. And Judas left to go to the chief priest to betray Jesus. And it was after that moment that the disciples and Jesus left to go to the garden. Well, the answer is given to us there in that passage and in other places. But notice what it says. It says, Judas, one of the twelve. This is a striking thing that Matthew and all, in fact, all the gospel writers who are writing about this, all four of them give this account. Note that he was one of the twelve. And it's really this poignant thing to point out that how horrendous and how heinous what Judas is doing in this moment is because he was. He was one of the twelve. He was part of the inner circle of Jesus' ministry. And yet, here he is doing such a grotesque thing. But because Jesus, because Judas was one of the twelve, he knew exactly where Jesus would be. John tells us that this was a place where Jesus had often met 
with his disciples. So Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be on that night. It could have been that after he had gone and he went to the chief priest, they might have stopped first by the upper room because that was the last place that Judas had seen Jesus. So they stopped by there. He's not there. And he would have said, well, if he's not here, I know exactly where they've gone. And so he carries them there. He followed, they follow him all the way to this olive grove called Gethsemane. It was a place where Jesus had taken his disciples many times before. How tragic is it? How the, the, the picture that it points to is this moment where Jesus and his disciples had shared so many wonderful memories before. And now was tarnished by this act of deceit. So there are enemies who are conspiring here because not only does Judas come alone, Judas does not come alone, but he comes with a large crowd of people. Now, Jesus was accustomed to crowds. He'd had crowds following all throughout his ministry. Every place that Jesus went, the crowds seemed to follow. But the crowd that was coming for Jesus tonight, in this moment, was not a crowd that was seeking him out for his teaching. It was not a crowd who was seeking him out for his miracles but a crowd who was seeking out to purposely arrest him and then to have him put to death. Now Matthew tells us that the crowd was, comes with swords and clubs. They came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now through the other gospel writers, we understand that they are part of the Roman soldiers. These were the, the uh, Roman soldiers as well as the temple guard. Now the temple guard, the, the Jewish temple, had guards that set up outside to make sure that things maintained in control, that there were never any uprisings or disturbances there in the temple. So they had come along with Judas, sent by the, uh, the chief priests. And oftentimes the Roman government would grant these uh, temple guards, they would grant them arresting powers to go out in cases of insurrection. But not only were the temple guards there, but there were Roman soldiers. There was a, a bastion of, of, of Roman soldiers along with him. Now, the number estimates are really kind of hard to pinpoint in this moment because we don't know if they sent everyone that they typically would, but a grouping of Roman soldiers was typically around 600 men. And by the number of other people that it says was alongside of this crowd, some commentators estimate that there could have been upwards of a thousand people in this group all coming to try to arrest Jesus in this moment, which leads us to this question, why in the world would you need a thousand people? Why would you world would you need 600 soldiers plus the temple guard to come and arrest Jesus? Well, part of it was all a part of a carefully put together plan because See, what the Jewish people wanted, to, what the Jewish leaders wanted to do, what the Pharisees and the chief priests wanted to do was to accuse Jesus of being an insurrectionist. This man is, is going to try to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to try to lead an insurrection against Rome. This was how they had to sell this to Pilate. And in the moment when Judas came to them and he finally said, guys, I'm willing to give him up. You give me the money. I'll tell you where it is. They immediately left from Judas. They had to go to Pilate and get permission to do what they were about to do. Because the Jewish people could not execute anybody without the permission of the Roman government. And the only way they knew they were going to be able to do this was if they painted Jesus as this revolutionary figure. And this is a man who you need to be afraid of. This is a man who you need to be aware of because he's going to try to overthrow the Roman government. And so they arrive here in this moment. This large group of people coming to arrest Jesus. Twelve guys. The eleven disciples and Jesus. Now in this moment when they arrive on the scene, it must have been striking, I think, to the soldiers who got there. Because no doubt, in times past, they had put down insurrections before. They had dealt with other men who had tried to start revolutions against the Roman government. And they would probably arrive on the scene to men armed with weapons, uh, to men who were, who, were, who were up in power and, and angry and ready to go and fight. But here they come and they find twelve men in an olive grove, who were praying. It must have been quite striking to them. But Jesus never for a moment ever encouraged the idea in His ministry of, of revolution. They encouraged the idea of, of overthrowing the Roman government. But in fact, this is what the Jewish people expected the Messiah to do. Right? If Jesus truly was the Messiah, this is what they thought was going to happen. The Messiah was going to arrive on the scene, overthrow the Roman government, establish rule back in Jerusalem, and they would live in, in, this, in this peaceful, happy place forever and ever to come. 
What's interesting about this text is that not only as this large crowd comes, but you have not only the chief priests and the elders of the people, the other gospel writers help us to understand that in this moment, all of the religious groups, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, had all teamed up together in order to pursue Jesus, to have him arrested and killed. And why that's so interesting is because these groups mostly despised one another. They did not often work together. They didn't like each other. They would do their own groups. Each one had their own following of people. Each one had their own manner and pattern of behavior. Each one had their own belief systems and how they thought about things. The Pharisees there in the temple, the the Sadducees who denied the resurrection from the dead, they did not get along. They did not join together except for in the persecution of Jesus. They were disposed to one another. They did not like each other. But in order to preserve the false idolatry that they had built, in order to preserve the the establishment that they had created, the control that they had over people, they were willing to overlook their hatred of each other to join forces in their hatred of Christ. So these were enemies who conspired together. You know, it's interesting. I think we even see this happening in our own world. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is still something that is hated by the world. And oftentimes you will see groups that would never come together before will come together in order to stand in opposition to the gospel of Christ. So we should not be surprised when we see these things happening because it's a a technique and a pattern of behavior that Satan has been using since the very beginning. These enemies were conspiring together in their hatred of Christ. The second thing I want you to notice here is Judas who betrays. We have enemies who conspires and then we have Judas who betrays. Look at verse 48 through the first part of verse 50. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. This was a kiss of pure betrayal. Scripture tells us here that Judas had told Those to whom he was betraying Jesus, he says, whenever I get there, the one whom I kiss, he is the Messiah. Seize him. Arrest him. It's in this moment that Judas forever tarnishes his name. I don't think anybody in this room who has children or who are thinking of having children sits down and says, you know what, if we have a son, let's name him Judas. Because the name, even for those who are outside of the Christian community, the name is is synonymous with, with deceit. The name is synonymous with evil. The name is synonymous with betrayal. And so we have to ask this question. What, what happens in a man like Judas that would cause him to, to betray, to tarnish his name, to, to forever become known as this figure of evil? Perhaps it was money, right? Because he he got 30 pieces of silver, but but really what was that? It was such a small amount in comparison with everything else that was at the time. And and we have to say it really couldn't have been money. Why? Because we know that Judas held the money bag. He was stealing already from from the disciples and from the money they were taking in. So he really had this, this open opportunity to really get as much money as he want because he was pilfering from the money bag. Perhaps it was disappointment. That Jesus was not the Messiah that he had desired or expected. We've talked over and over throughout the book of Matthew of the Jewish perception of the Messiah. We just said earlier that he was going to arrive on the scene, establish his control, and take back the city of Jerusalem. But now, three years later, Jesus hadn't done that. And in fact, instead of talking about rising up, Jesus was talking about being cast down. Instead of talking about taking control, Jesus was talking about being humble. Instead of rising to power, Jesus was talking about going to a cross and dying. We really don't know. The one thing we do know is that Judas betrayed Jesus because it was the plan of God. It was the purpose of God that Judas would go and to betray Christ. But there's a danger here that I think we need to be aware of. There's a danger here that we see in Judas so perfectly of false belief. The Scripture says that when Judas came to Jesus, that he greeted him with a kiss. 
The word that is used here is talking about the kiss of a friend. It's very common practice in Middle Eastern countries and still is today uh, to, to be greeted by a kiss, whether you're a, a two men or two women, it doesn't matter because it's not anything of a sexual nature. It's just a greeting of friendship and hello. And especially in the day in which Jesus lived, the, the way that you greeted somebody bestowed the relationship that you had with that person. And for the kiss that Judas gives here, it was this kiss of friendship, of relationship, of respect and admiration. And in fact, the language used here in the original language is saying that, Jesus, that Judas kissed him multiple times upon the cheek. That it wasn't just one time. It was kind of this very vigorous kind of thing of, of just these two friends, in a sense, coming back together. And then he calls him rabbi which means teacher. It was a, as a word of affection used for someone who you would spend time with. In fact, it was the same language that, that he had used when they were in the upper room together. But brothers and sisters, what we see in this text is that outward acts of religious affection do not always betray a true inward love for Christ. Now on the outside... If you were just to see this in the moment, let's, let's, let's pretend that the crowds are not there. Let's pretend that the Roman soldiers and the temple guards aren't present. You just see Judas coming up to Jesus, kissing him on the cheek and saying, Rabbi, how are you? You would have said, well, well this man loves Jesus. Look at, look at the respect, look at the admiration, look at the care that he has for him. And we understand from, from reading the Scriptures that Judas was called. That he was following after Jesus because Jesus had come to him and said, Come, follow me. And Judas went along the way. Judas had heard Jesus teach, not only in public, as many people had, in the synagogues and in the crowds, but he had heard Jesus teach in private. He had been a part of that intimate circle there with Jesus of the twelve disciples who got to sit with Jesus more often than anybody else and hear from his heart who he was and what he desired to do. Judas had witnessed many miracles. He had worked alongside the other disciples and seeing miracles happen. And seemingly, by all outward appearances, was a faithful disciple. We have the advantage of being able to look back and understanding the end of Judas's life. And so we're kind of tarnished in that way because we know how Judas ended up when we read the Bible, and even as we read early on in the Scriptures and we read about Judas, we could say, oh, well, we know, we know where he's going. We know what's going on here. But for the disciples, they had no clue. And in fact, as they looked at Judas, they saw one of their own. They saw somebody who had followed Christ. They saw somebody who had given up things. They saw somebody who, by their uh, judgment, was a true follower of Christ. And the way that we understand this is what happens in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 22 when Jesus said that someone would betray him. It says, being de deeply grieved, they each began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. Is it, is it me? N not one person in the room, when Jesus said, one of you who will betray me, they're like, oh, <laughs> it's Judas. We know who it is. Not a single one of them did that. Why? Because they had no idea. They had no idea of what was happening on the inside of Judas's heart, that he truly was not a follower of Christ, but yet was one who had rejected the true saving knowledge of who Christ was. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful to not judge the spiritual condition of another person based solely upon their outward actions. But brothers and sisters, we have to be even more careful to not judge our eternal salvation based solely upon what we do outwardly. There has to be a change on the inside. There has to be something that has transformed on the inside of us that makes us into a new creature. It's why Peter was so poignant to warn us. He says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling. Make your calling and election sure. This is not a call to, to, to live in doubt about who we are in Christ. Because the Scripture tells us that we can be confident. John writes, he says, I write these things to you that you may know who Christ is and that you're in Him. He, he writes these things that we can be confident in our salvation. But Peter is warning us, he says, as you look at your life and you look at the Scripture, make careful judgment of your life. And if what the Scripture says that your life should look like is not who you are, then you need to be very afraid. 
And it's not just the outward, it's the inward. What's happening on the inside. By all outward appearances, Judas looked as if he was a true follower of Christ, but inwardly he had never been transformed. Commentators point to probably a number of reasons why Judas did follow Jesus for those three years. It could have been greed. He, he knew that he could get a hold of the money bag and have the money that he wanted. There was probably a, 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 a typical amount of pride involved. Because he says, oh, well, here's this new Jesus on the scene, this new teacher, and he's gathering crowds around him. And if I follow after him, if I'm one of his disciples, then all these things will come to me. These accolades, this, this privilege, this prestige, all these things will come to me. So there was selfishness, there was pride, there was greed. These things involved in which why Judas was pursuing after Christ, but yet never being transformed. It made me think of what we see happening in our culture around us with people who are, quote-unquote, deconstructing their faith. Now, you may not have seen this, but if you go on social media, any platform, Facebook, YouTube, it doesn't matter. You're going to see a number of posts from people uh, who either use the term ex-vangelical or talk about deconstructing their faith. And what they mean is that they've come to a place in their life where they have decided that they are no longer Christian and they're walking away from the Christian faith. Well, number one, that's an impossibility. If somebody says that they're an ex-evangelical or deconstructing their faith, what they're coming to realization with is not the fact that they have stopped becoming a Christian. They've come to the realization they were never a Christian to begin with. Because it's impossible to be truly saved and walk away from Christ. But the problem is, is that we've created a culture in, in Christianity where, where people believe just that, that. That Christianity is something that you can pick up one day, carry it for a while, and when it, it, while it makes you happy, you hold on to it. And when it dissatisfies you, that you can just toss it away like you do the latest fad or trend. But the Scripture teaches us that salvation is something that happens on the inside of us, not of our own strength, not of our own power, not of our own ability, but something that God does on the inside of us, and it is something we cannot undo. When God has truly saved us, that's who we are. But you have a lot of people, because of Christian culture, who have made a profession, they've made some type of outward commitment to Christ based upon some of the same reasons that Judas had done. Sometimes it really is greed. They say, oh, well, here in the Christian world, there's lots of things available to me. It may not be monetarily, but it says there's things that I can get out of this, and I want to be a part of that. I want what I can get. And so they make a profession of faith. Sometimes it's about, well, they're made a promise. They're, they're, they're given false pretenses and hopes that if you come to faith in Christ, then your marriage will get better, your kids will behave better. You know, if you watch TV, they'll tell you that if you come to faith in Christ and you give enough money, then God will give you a new house, He'll give you a new car, He'll give you a new job, He'll give you everything that your heart desires. So they come to Christ based upon false pretenses. The Scripture tells us we come to Christ not out of what, he, what, not out of what we can give, or not out of what we can get from Him, but because we're broken. We come to Christ because we realize there's nothing that we have to offer. We come to Christ because we realize that we are sinners who desperately need forgiveness. I, I don't come to Christ because I want to make my marriage better. I come to Christ because I realize the problem in my marriage is that I'm a sinner who needs Jesus. I don't come to Christ to try to make my kids behave better. I come to Christ because I realize that I'm a sinner. And if I'm a parent and I'm outside of Christ, I need to be saved so that God can teach me how to then disciple my children. I come to faith in Christ because I'm a sinner who desperately needs to be saved. But see, Judas had never realized that. He had never understood the depravity of his sin. And we understand that because here at the very end of his life, Judas turns his back upon the one who could offer those things to him. He was a man of false faith. But it gives us this very clear warning, brothers and sisters, that we can look around, look at self first at ourselves to say, am I doing the same thing that Judas did? Am I just making a false pretense of faith based upon what I want to get? Am I just making a false profession of faith based upon what I want others to think about me? Or do I truly have a relationship with Christ? Matthew Poole in his commentary said, Oh, the depths of desperate wickedness 
which is in the heart of man, especially such as apostatize from a former profession. They are commonly the worst and falsest enemies of Christ and His gospel. And we see that in Judas. Judas apostatized from the faith and becomes known as one of this pure deceit, pure betrayal, pure wickedness and evil. And his testimony tarnished the truth of what he could have been in Christ. And we see so many people today, it's such a tragedy. I, I, I can honestly say my heart is broken every time I see one of these videos or posts pop up of some young person or sometimes even middle-aged people who walk away from Christianity and say, I've, I've, I'm turning away from Christ. It breaks my heart to know this, like this person has never truly understood the truth of who Christ is. Never understood the truth of what the gospel is, and they, yet they have chosen to turn away from what they desperately need. So we see this false profession in Judas's life, but I want you to also notice here the response of true humility. Because Jesus says in verse 50, Friend, do what you have come for. Now the word friend that Jesus used here is used two other places in Matthew. And the word friend was commonly used as the idea of a, of a table companion. It was talking about somebody who you'd sit down and break bread together with. It was a it was this term of endearment. But it's interesting that the word for friend that Matthew describes here, that the word Jesus used, and the other two places and here where it's used in, in this passage, is the idea of somebody uh, um, rejecting or regretting the conduct of the person whom they're speaking to. So they're using the term friend, but they're talking it in such a way as like I, what you have done, what you have the behavior that you have shown, I do not like. But yet here there's this term, and why would Jesus use this? Well, number one, he's showing Judas in this moment that he knows exactly what Judas has done. Judas thinks that he has done this in secret. And in fact, some believe that even in this moment that Judas thought that he would just be able to come here and and do this and get away with it and kind of disappear off into the crowd and, and no one would ever know that it was him. That maybe just by some chance all of these people were following after him. They had just happened to follow him there to the garden. But Jesus also uses this term friend to illustrate the wickedness of the deed by which Judas betrayed him. Jesus knew that he would be despised by his fellow men, by by the Jewish people. He knew that that was going to happen. But to be betrayed by your fellow man is one thing. To be betrayed by someone who has claimed to be your friend who has been with you through the ups and the downs of life, to be betrayed by someone so close to you, Jesus is illustrating that. He's saying, okay, friend, do what you've come to do. And in fact, many scholars believe that this moment was a final warning for Judas. That it was in the sense that Jesus was kind of giving him this final moment to repent. Saying, Judas, it's not too late to turn away from what you've done. It's not too late But we know that Judas did not. That he rejected Christ, not only spiritually, but even physically, in in condemning him and turning him over to the chief priests and the scribes and the Sadducees. Now some would comment at this moment, well, the Scripture does say that Judas repented. And in the English, it does. But this is one of those moments where it's important for us to understand that our English language is limited when it comes to understanding the original languages because there are two words that are used for repentance. The first word is is genuine repentance, and that means coming to the acknowledgement of our sin, being brokenhearted over our sin because we've offended a just and a holy God, and so we turn from our sin in repentance, asking God to forgive us. But the second type of repentance is a false repentance. And that's what the Scripture says that Judas had. Judas had a false repentance. And a false repentance is not because you're sorry for what you have done, but you're just sorry that you got caught. I always use the example in talking about false repentance of the child who gets caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And they go into the kitchen when their parents have told them not to have the cookie, and, and they've got their hand in the cookie jar, and mom walks back in the room, and they say, oh, I'm sorry. But they're not sorry. If mom hadn't walked into the room, they would have grabbed that cookie, they would have shoved it in their face, and they would have never thought about it again. But only because they got caught did they repent. 
Only because they got caught and they were afraid of the punishment to come did they repent. And that's the type of repentance that Judas experienced. He was sorry, not because he was brokenhearted that he had betrayed his master. He was sorry because he realized, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to face God for this. But he was not brokenhearted over it. He was just afraid of the punishment. So we have Judas who betrays. Now, I want you to notice next in this passage, Peter who presumes. Peter who presumes. Look at verse, the end of verse 50. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we understand that it's Peter here because of the description that's given in John's gospel. John was the last of the writers to write his gospel account. The other three were much earlier. And the reason that the other three writers do not include the name of Peter in their writings is because they were written so early on that Peter could perhaps have gotten in trouble for what he did in this moment. And there was still an opportunity that he could have gotten in trouble for cutting off this slave of the high priest's ear. But by the time that John writes his gospel, that time is long past. And so he gives us a description that it is Peter. Now, Peter's impetuousness is very well known. Over and over throughout the Scriptures, we see Peter putting his foot in his mouth on multiple occasions. Oftentimes, or almost always, it was an attempt to prove himself, right? He wanted to prove himself to Jesus. He wanted to show that he was bold. He wanted to show that he was powerful. He wanted to show that he was knowledgeable and wise. And he wanted to be impressive before others. So the soldiers arrive in the garden. Now, John gives us the account that when they said, Jesus asked him, who are you looking for? And he said, Jesus, he said, I am he, that they they fell down. That this power of God moved out and they all fell to the ground. And so seemingly in this moment, Peter's like, well, this is my chance, right? So So he jumps up, pulls out his sword and runs to the front of all these soldiers and begins to swing to fight what he perceives as the enemy. And as he swings his sword at the slave of the high priest, no doubt to try to cut his head off, the soldier ducks at precisely the right moment, and all Peter does is to cut off his ear. But we understand that this was not God's intention in this moment. Jesus had not gathered the disciples in the garden to fight a battle. He had gathered them there to pray. Jesus was not fighting a battle with the soldiers. Jesus was willingly giving Himself over to go to the cross and die. And Luke tells us in this moment that Jesus cried and said, Stop, no more of this. And He bent down, picked the ear up off the ground, and He healed this soldier's or this slave's ear. And Jesus healed him. He was trying to bring a, a, a quietus to this moment because the plan must stay on course. If Peter started a full-out battle here in this moment, it was going to detract from the plan that God had purposely foreordained. They were not here to fight. They were here to submit. They were here for Jesus to give Himself over. And so Jesus gives this warning here. In verse 52, He says, Put your sword back into its place, for those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Now, Jesus here is not saying, He's not calling for for pacifism. He's not saying that we can't fight in a need, in a time when, when fighting is necessary. Jesus is not saying that Christians cannot be soldiers in war. He's not saying that Christians cannot defend themselves in, in times where they need to defend themselves. What Jesus is saying here is that there's a right use of force and that this moment does not call for it. Because we understand that Jesus is laying down His life here by His own power. In John chapter 10, he says, No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In John chapter 18, when Peter cuts this ear off, he looks at Peter and he says, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? He says, Peter, the purpose of God is for me to go to the cross. And no amount of your fighting, no amount of your opinion, no amount of your presuming what you think you need to do is going to change that. We're not here to fight. We're not here to battle. We're here so that I can willingly give my life over to these people so they can take me into captivity. It was an unnecessary need of defense. Jesus basically looks at Peter and says, Peter, I don't need you to defend me. 
He says, in this moment, if I need it, he says, all I have to do is to call upon the Father and he'll send legions of angels to come. More than 12 legions of angels. Now, I don't know if you understand, but a legion of angels was around 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is saying, in a moment, all I have to do is say the word and the Lord will send 72,000 angels to come and to defend me. Jesus did not need Peter's power to defend himself because Jesus knew the source of true power. Jesus here in this moment did not need to be rescued. He did not need to be saved because he was on a mission. He had a task and he had a purpose that he was going to fulfill. Jesus' enemies in this moment were not the soldiers. Jesus' enemies in this moment were not even the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Jesus' enemy in this moment was Satan, sin, and death. Satan desired to see Jesus crucified, so he had, had entered into Judas. He had betrayed him because he thought, Satan thought, that he was going to be able to accomplish all these things, not understanding and knowing that he was doing everything according to God's perfect plan. Jesus was not without power. Peter looked at this moment and he says, Jesus needs someone to stand up for him. Jesus needs someone to protect him. But Jesus had already told his disciples that he was not alone. John chapter 16, he says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus needed no one to defend him because he had the Father on his side. He was filled with the power of God, submitted to his Father's will, and Jesus could march forth in boldness without fear. Brothers and sisters, there is no more powerful place to be than right inside the will of God. And this is exactly where Jesus was. When we're inside the will of God for our lives, nothing can happen to us outside of God's perfect plan. It doesn't matter how many people rise up against us. It doesn't matter how numerous they are. Let's be honest. If we were to look at this situation, somewhat of a thousand people gathered here, 12 disciples here, we'd think, well, this is a losing battle. But Jesus could walk out, submit his hands to them and say, here I am, take me, because he knew he was right in the middle of God's will for his life. And brothers and sisters, this power is available to all of us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful, the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We have power available to us through the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be afraid of what this world brings against us. We don't have to be afraid of the things we face in this life. If we're pursuing God and seeking to stay in the center of His will, we do not have to be afraid. We see Peter who presumes, but I want you to notice in verses 54 and 56, Christ who submits. Jesus says, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Jesus says, you come out as a robber against me. The word robber means a thief or a violent rebel. And we know that Jesus was no such man. He was not a thief. He was not a man of violence. He was not an insurrectionist. In fact, he was the polar opposite. Jesus had never done anything wrong. All he had done throughout his entire life was to help people, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to teach the kingdom of God, to encourage people to love one another, to seek compassion. And Jesus says, you, here you come out in the middle of the night to arrest me. He says, every single day, I'm sitting in the synagogue in the broad daylight. You know where I would be every single day. Would it not be easier to come and arrest me then? Well, they come in the middle of the night because they knew their deeds were evil. They knew what the people would think of them if they came to arrest Jesus, which is why they came at night. They were afraid of the people of Jerusalem. They said, well, if we try to arrest Jesus in the day, the people will rise up against us and we'll never have any hope of doing what we want to do. All of these men, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, were cowards who were afraid of the knowledge of who Christ really was. They didn't want to admit it because they knew what it meant for them, that they would lose everything that they had built in their own life. 
But Christ submits here. He says that all of these things would have to take place to fulfill the Scriptures. And I don't have time to go into all of the passages this morning, but it's one of those things that Matthew points out that the other writers don't in this fulfillment of prophecy because, again, of who is Matthew writing to? He's writing to Jewish people. And he's writing to convince them of Jesus as the Messiah. So every time that he has the opportunity to point to the fulfillment of prophecy, Matthew's going to do so. And so here he points these things out of what Jesus is describing here. There was a fulfillment of submission. What's happening here in the garden was not something that just happened by chance. This, this fulfillment in the garden is one where Jesus submits, and it was something that it said that the Messiah would do. Isaiah chapter 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. It speaks to one who was submissive in this moment. And this is exactly what Jesus did. The scripture we already read, that no one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. They did not take Jesus unwillingly. He gave himself over to them. He submitted to drinking the cup that the Father had given him to drink. There was a fulfillment of prophecy even in the betrayal of Judas. Psalm 41 verse 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm chapter 55, which Pastor Wesley read this morning said, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor it is the one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. So even the betrayal of Judas, this betrayal of one who was close to the Messiah who would turn his back on him was a perfect fulfillment of prophecy. And then moving forward, there was the fulfillment of crucifixion. And we have to understand that although crucifixion was a readily known means of torture and execution in the day of Jesus, it was relatively new in the sense of humankind. But a thousand years earlier, when the prophet Isaiah was writing, in Isaiah chapter 53, crucifixion had not been thought of yet. Nobody knew what it was, but yet, in Isaiah chapter 53, he gives such a powerful description of what would happen to Jesus in this moment. He goes through and he describes everything that would happen to the Messiah. I've always found it interesting. I learned this from a friend of mine who was a street preacher who did a lot of street preaching and dealing with people who were from a Jewish background. Because sad to say, a lot of times people who, who are Jews have not really read the Scriptures for themselves. I mean, they know their Torah. I mean, they know the books. But they've never really actually sat down and read it for themselves. And so what my friend would always do, he says, well, let me read a passage of Scripture to you. And he would read to them Isaiah chapter 53. He didn't tell them where it was from. He didn't tell them what it was. He just said, let me read this passage of Scripture to you. And when he would get finished, he says, well, who is that passage of Scripture describing? And they would say, oh, well, that's describing Jesus. And they said, well, where do you think it's from? He said, well, that must be from the New Testament. Because you cannot read Isaiah 53 and walk away not understanding that it's about Jesus. And then when he would tell them, he says, no, this, this is from the Old Testament. This is from, from, from your book. This is from the Jewish Old Testament. This is Isaiah. He says, the look of astonishment that oftentimes comes upon their face when they realize how crystal clear the prophecies were about who Christ was and how perfectly He fulfilled every single one. So Christ submitted to the will of the Father. Christ submitted to the arrest of the soldiers. Christ submitted to the betrayal of Judas in order that all the prophecies might be fulfilled and that He would be right in the center of the will of God. Now finally, I want you to notice the disciples who desert. Look at verse 56, the last part. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now Jesus had given them a warning. Earlier in this chapter, 
He had said, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And what did they respond? Peter said, never may it be, Jesus. I'll, I will never desert you. I'll even die for you. And the rest of the disciples all agreed with him. But Jesus has already warned them. He says, you're going to desert me. I don't know about you, but I would hope that if someone whom I loved as much as the disciples loved Jesus, someone who I had that much respect for, if they gave me such a stern warning that would be so shocking to my, to my own soul, I was like, well, Jesus, I don't think I would ever do that to you. I would hope it would cause me to be ever more aware of what was going on around me. But Jesus gave them this warning. And then he also gave them an opportunity that they forsook. Because remember, after he told them, you will betray me, they go to the garden. And he says, watch and pray with me that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is, is giving again a precursor to what's getting ready to happen. He says, you need to pray. Because if not, you're going to fall into the temptation to desert me. He said, I know that you think on the inside that you're great. You think on the outside, I like, oh, Jesus, I'll never desert you. But Jesus here is giving them again this opportunity by saying, you need to pray and watch because you may be willing in spirit, but the flesh is weak. When the danger comes, when the persecution happens, you're going to fall away. We have to ask, how could they do it? How could they desert the master whom they love so much? One commentator said, fear comes suddenly to start our feet. The disciples here are in the garden. Twelve men, including Jesus, gathered here. And all of a sudden, they're surrounded by all of these soldiers, all of these temple guards. They see the one whom they followed for three years being arrested and taken away. And they are struck with pure fear. Like This is the end. He's gone. They, they know what the soldiers are there to do. They know what's going to happen to Jesus. He's being arrested and taken away, and there's no coming back from this in their minds. And their thought is, well, then what's going to happen to us? We're, we're associated with him. We're, we're part of his group. And so the fear that comes over them turns away, and they run fleeing from the garden. But brothers and sisters, we have to be careful in this moment. We have to be careful to not be too critical of what the disciples did. Because if we were there in the same moment, guess what? We would do the same thing. Spurgeon said this. He said, It would have been to the eternal honor of any one of the disciples to have kept close to Christ right up to the last. But neither the loving John nor the boastful Peter stood the test of that solemn time. Human nature is such poor stuff, even at its best, that we cannot hope that any of us would have been braver or more faithful than the apostles were. These were men who had spent every waking moment with Jesus. You could not have any more of an intimate relationship with Jesus than these men had. And yet in this moment, the fear of what was going to happen and the temptation of the flesh was so great that they ran away. Brothers and sisters, the good news of what we see here about the disciples is that even though they were weak in this moment, did not mean that they were despised of God. Even though they were weak here in this moment, did not mean that God said, okay, I'm done with you now. Even Peter would go on in the coming weeks. We're going to look at Peter's denial when he would fulfill the prophecy of what Jesus said, that before the rooster crowed three times, he would deny. And Peter would outright not just run away, but outright deny that he even knew Christ three times there when the trial was taking place. But we see that God used each one of these men for the glory of his kingdom. I was struck as I read this week about a, a parallel that I'd never made before. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells the disciples, Behold, an hour is coming, has already come, for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. So he's telling them, this is going to happen. He's speaking of this moment. He's speaking of the moment when the disciples would betray him, when they would run away, when they would flee, and they would deny him. 
And in the very next chapter, we have Jesus' high priestly prayer. When he prays for his disciples. And he prays for God to protect them. And to keep them. And to watch over them. And to use them for the glory of his kingdom. And this is exactly what happens in the life of these men. We go to the book of Acts. We've been looking at the book of Acts in our Sunday school class. And we've been talking about this. That you see Peter deny Jesus before his death. But then after his death, you see Peter stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach one of the most powerful sermons ever preached outside of Jesus. And thousands of people being saved. You see the other apostles going on to live lives that are full of the power of the Spirit of God. Preaching the gospel. Thousands and thousands of people being saved. And the church growing. Because they were not trusting in their own ability. Here in the garden, the disciples were trusting in their own power. It's the reason that Jesus had warned them to not trust. To say this, he said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and they knew and understood the truth and the power of who Christ was, now they're indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're not doing these things in and of, them own, of their own self, but they're doing them under the power of God. And God uses them mightily for His kingdom. I want to close from this quote from James Boyce. He says, What a difference the presence and the power of Jesus Christ makes. He is able to turn cowards into heroes, foolish persons into those who are wise, and sinners into saints. And He will do it for you if you turn from your foolish self-confidence, embrace the gospel, and lean on Him for your daily strength and courage. Brothers and sisters, may we be those kinds of Christians who are not trusting in our own self-confidence, who are not trusting in our own ability, but trusting solely and completely on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do what God has called us to do. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the instruction that we find here. We thank You for, for the beautiful message of the Gospel that transforms our lives and does indwell us with the power of Your Spirit. Lord, we confess that we are often weak and frail, Lord, that we often fail you. Lord, we are often like the disciples. We may not be facing against legions of soldiers. But Father, sometimes it's worse because it's just one person at work who says, oh, you're a Christian. What do you think about this controversial topic? And we shy back because we're afraid of what they might say. We shy back because we're afraid we might get in trouble. And Lord, in those moments, we realize that we are no better than the disciples were in this moment where they deserted you. But Father, we thank you that you do indwell us with the power of the Spirit. And that by the power of your Spirit, that we can stand bold in circumstances. As we see Peter and James and John and the other apostles doing all throughout the book of Acts. Lord, we can stand bold when people come to us and they question us or they criticize our faith. Or Father, even in the day that may come that somebody comes against us with sword and club to confront us about our faith, that even in those moments we can stand boldly for the truth of the gospel. Father, this morning I pray that you would guide our hearts to be more committed to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name.